You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The second lecture in our series on the spiritual life concerns the goals of the spiritual life. I think it's a generally true statement that in every aspect of our life we need to have goals and yet the end and the goal that we have is always somehow present in our intentions long before the actual achievement of that particular goal. So too in the spiritual life. In order to act well we need to know what the goal is we need to determine what the means are that are appropriate toward getting that end, and then we must learn actually to take the means at hand so as to achieve the goal we desire. In the spiritual life, the ultimate goal is giving glory to God. There are admittedly some more immediate goals that are closer at hand to us, things like sanctification and salvation, and yet even so they are means to an end. They are means toward giving God the glory, which is the reason why we all exist. We Jesuits like to use giving God the glory as our motto, AMDG, Ad Maiorem Dei Gloriam, to the greater glory of God. But this formulation of it that St. Ignatius championed is simply one of the ways that Christian spirituality has developed for trying to express what is something truly common to all of us, namely giving God the glory not to ourselves, but rather always to Him. And there are various ways in which this effort to give God the glory has elicited forms of praise, reverence, and service, so that by doing so in this world, we may indeed be happy with Him in the next. Sacred Scripture is just filled with the language of giving God the glory and of thinking about the divine life as a life in which God's love and God's glory can be manifest and is manifest for us in the created world. What I'd like to do in this lecture is first to think about that phrase, giving God the glory and giving Him greater glory, and then secondly, turning to some of the other goals of the spiritual life, I will consider sanctification and salvation as our more immediate ends. Let me begin with a text from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When our Lord expresses this, we hear from him in that verse and in the surrounding verses a strong sense of why he came, namely that he might give us life, the life of God himself, and that through the Holy Spirit in an abiding way we might become such a sharer in divine life as to be elevated in our various natural powers and natural activities to the supernatural order, ultimately to live with God in heaven where we may give him praise eternally. In the meanwhile, we try to live a supernatural life. We try to cultivate sanctity and look toward our salvation precisely to begin even now with this project of giving God the glory, never by simply hoarding Christ like a treasure, but rather taking that life that he gives us as a seed which needs to grow and to develop. For what we aim in this development, in this cultivation of Christian perfection, what we aim is to have a right relationship with God and then a rightly ordered love for our neighbor like ourselves. 
All sound moral theology that comes hand in hand with spiritual theology will always respect this relationship between means and ends. I think of someone like St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, the church's greatest theologian from the 13th century, who speaks very rightly about beatitude, the beatific vision, as our ultimate end, and then elaborates an entire set of principles for Christian morality of human action with due regard for what will bring us to beatitude, or on the other hand, what would separate us from love of God, aiming to come to that end precisely so that we can praise and glorify God forever. Spiritual theology will always need to be in close link with moral theology on this vital question. Well, what then do we mean by the phrase, giving God the glory? It is something which I think we can learn a lot from the various parts of the Christian tradition. The first thing I think that we need to consider on this topic is that God is infinitely perfect. God lacks nothing. Nothing could be added to him that he does not already have or possess. In this first sense of the term, the glory of God, before we get around to giving God any glory, the very term glory of God refers to the very inner life of God that exists in the life of the Trinity by God's own intrinsic beauty and truth and goodness. And then what Christian theologians like Aquinas and other of his compatriot theologians in the course of Christian history have done is tried to meditate on what the life of God himself is, what this intra-Trinitarian set of loves is. Here we can call upon not only theologians from the West, people like St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Hilary, but theologians from the East, Gregory of Nazianzen, St. Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, and then the long history of church councils, which has been devoted to considering various prospects from dogmatic theology. They will have a tremendous importance for our study of spiritual theology. First, if we try to consider this divine life, what we'll be trying to consider is the loves that take place within the Trinity, so far as they have been revealed to us. In particular, what the church fathers and the councils have called our attention to on this matter is that while all the members of the Trinity are involved in the work of creation and of redemption and of sanctification, nevertheless, it is quite appropriate within Christian theology to call attention to a particular characteristic kind of love that marks each member of the Trinity and each member of the Trinity shares with the others. When thinking about it in this way, one thinks, of course, of the Father as the source of all being, the source of everything, and one who even gets his name, Father, by eternally and freely generating a son. And his characteristic love for that reason is generally thought to be a kind of love of generosity by which he gives himself and generates a perfect likeness of himself in the Son, in the Word, who is his only begotten Son. In response to this generosity on the part of the Father, the characteristic love of the Son is a love of perfect gratitude and a free acceptance, receiving everything that he has and is eternally from the Father. In their mutual complementarity, they breathe forth the Holy Spirit, who offers the perfect delight, the love of perfect delight and of glory, and all the perfect giving and the perfect receiving. Now, this is only a very small taste of what the Christian fathers have discovered about the loves right within the Trinity, but it gives us a sense about some of their characteristic activities and characteristic loves, that there is a perfect glory that is manifest in this love of Father and Son and Spirit. The entire created universe, now separate and apart from God, 
exists to manifest God's glory, God's goodness, His beauty, and His truth. God does not create the universe for the sake of gaining some good that He did not already possess, for rather He has everything that there is, and He is this in His own very nature. Rather, God creates this for Himself and for a manifestation of His own goodness and His truth and His beauty. How frequently in the world we see goodness diffusing itself, goodness sharing itself, and goodness being very fruitful. So too, and all the more so with God, God's goodness and love is by its very nature communicative of itself, and He freely and generously has produced a world. Now, given this world that He produces, one sees how creatures can begin to give God the glory. They share in His beauty and His goodness and His truth by their natures that He has given them. And for many of them, for all of them except for our own kind, they will reflect His glory simply by being what they are and doing what it is that they're supposed to do. They have in their distinct ways of being, ways of manifesting the great goodness of God after whom they are modeled. For there was nothing else on which God could model anything except His own very self. But while all creatures in their various ways, one after another, reflect God simply by following their own nature, creatures with an intellect and a will, creatures of the human kind, have a special way of reflecting their Creator. We, and to this extent we are like the angels, have free choice with regard to what we do and we have to come to know what it is we're doing in order to do it in a human way. By giving adoration and praise to God, when we recognize some reflection of God in the created world, in the beauties of the universe, or in the virtuous deeds of various persons, we can truly give God the glory precisely by our praise and reverence. And this is the chief goal, I think, of the spiritual life learning how better to appreciate God in His own divine nature and to appreciate the created universe so as to praise and reverence and serve Him in accord with the natures of the things that we come to know and whose various goods we come to understand. It's also important to know here that we are made in the very image and likeness of the triune God, and so our loves ought in some way, in some manner, to reflect that love of perfect generosity that is characteristic of the Father, and the love of real gratitude that was typical of the Son, and the love of real delight and joy and glory that was so much characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, that fact of original sin again weighs in heavily, and so while we never cease to be in the image of God, that's a structural feature about us, we have, unfortunately, frequently lost the likeness. It has been obscured by original sin, and then the history of actual sins in our own persons and sometimes in the disabilities that are inflicted upon a whole culture. For this reason, the effort to restore our likeness, we who are made in God's image, require the spiritual life so as to achieve that first goal of the spiritual life and more authentically and completely to give God the glory, we ourselves need those second and third goals of the spiritual life namely sanctification and salvation. Let me turn now to those goals that are goals immediately and directly with respect to us. Human sanctification and salvation are simply crucial to the spiritual life. While they are not the ultimate goal that giving God greater glory is, they are crucial as means to the first goal. Admittedly, 
We are often much more aware of these immediate goals, the quest for personal sanctification, the quest for our personal salvation, and yet we must constantly keep in mind the greater glory of God, even though really focusing on the greater glory of God and for making it the predominant motive in our lives, it may well require that we advance fairly far on the road to perfection beyond where most of us find ourselves at the present time. Why? Because it involves total abandonment to God's will, and total abandonment of our wills is a very difficult thing. Sadly, many of our contemporaries have become forgetful even of these more immediate goals of the spiritual life, and they take sanctification as if it were merely a metaphor, and an old metaphor at that, and some may even suffer under the misapprehension that salvation is virtually automatic at death. But in fact, neither of those two things is the case. Salvation is possible for us in Christ, but there is real risk, real risk of damnation. And the importance of Catholic poets like Dante, I think, is that they show us in such vivid detail the tremendous glories of the life of heaven, but also some of the real pains likely to be involved in the pains of hell. Sanctification is not merely a kind of affirmation of what we already are. It is rather a process of trying to grow closer to the very image of God that comes by our perfection, by the eradication of vice, by growth in virtue, and especially by cooperation with the gifts and graces that God lavishes upon us. Salvation, I think, refers primarily to gaining our eternal life, a life in glory that is ultimately the source of our happiness. It is something that can only be attained in the life after death, after our bodily death, when we come into God's own glory and can see it. As such, salvation is something that we cannot achieve by our own strength alone. The perfect happiness of heaven will only be the result of the workings of grace that finally bring to full manifestation in us the divine life that is given to us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That life that we were meant to live, but that we lost in original sin, and which has to be restored to us by the graces of baptism, and then cultivated in the rest of the sacraments. During this life, we have to realize that we are still and only on pilgrimage, on journey, and we must keep constant vigil. As it says in the first letter of St. John, what we shall later be has not yet come to light. We know that when it comes to light, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Thomas Aquinas, whom I've referred to a number of times so far, is very insistent that there are two conditions that will have to be met for our final beatitude in heaven. First, the total perfection of the individual, and secondly, a knowledge of the good that we have achieved. Let's deal with them in turn. First, the total perfection of the individual. One might consider a text like Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is not merely metaphorical language. In some people, God will have accomplished this even by the time of their death. There are real saints among us. But for all the rest of us, God needs to work this for us, for in heaven there can be nothing stained or imperfect. For many of us, and I cherish the hope, there will be need of healing in purgatory. Every soul in glory is a saint fully perfected, in intimate union with God. 
And whatever their differences in capacity, God will fill them all. Again, one thinks here of the way in which a poet like Dante pictures heaven, and he envisions everyone as having a seat where they can see. Everyone is equally close to God, and yet he's very mindful that there are different capacities in us. But God will fill all of our capacities and more, and that this is part of what the beatific vision and the glory of being with God in heaven is all about. The second point on which Aquinas insisted is that the souls who are in glory will have a real knowledge of the good that they have come to possess in glory. Thomas calls this the beatific vision. One might here consider a text like the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now we see indistinctly as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. My knowledge now is imperfect, but then I shall know even as I am known during this life, while we are still pilgrims, on our way to God, any knowledge that we manage to gain about God will have to be adjusted to our capacity to understand. We understand now through images and abstractions from those images and reasoning as best we can. But in heaven, the powers of our intellect will be enhanced. We will be made more capable than we are capable now by the supernatural life that we are given, by the illumination of our intellect, by the life of glory. We are told by the church that at death we may expect from God a personal judgment. Anyone who dies in the state of grace is indeed saved, but what the church tells us is that not everyone at death will be ready for the immediate vision of God, for the immediate joy of the beatitude in glory. Those in need of further purification must indeed dwell for a while in purgatory, in a place where there is perfection achieved precisely and completely by the grace of God operating upon us. This will be for the remission of any remaining punishment due to sin, and also for the healing that needs to go on, so that whatever is stained and imperfect within us may be, in fact, the stain removed and we made perfect again. If I may quote my dear Dante just one more time, he envisions the life of purgatory as involving a series of contrapassos, a series of purifications in which the punishment always fits the crime and is, in one way or another, particularly suited to heal it. My favorite one is the punishment that he, in his imagination, devises for the lazy. He thinks that those guilty of sloth will have their purgatory spent jogging. We'll see whether that's true. But what we do know from the church is that sanctifying grace is available to us, available to us even in this life, available to us through the sacraments that lead us toward eternal life and that begin even now the process of our perfection. In heaven, the beatific vision will replace the faith that now is our steadfast companion on our journey. And thus it will be a perfection of one of the gifts that we are now given, the spiritual gift of understanding, We'll come to a few lectures from now in a greater detail. Right now on earth, it is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives us sometimes to help us to understand the things of God. In heaven, this understanding that is by way of a special gift now will involve a vision, seeing God face to face. We remember perhaps the line from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. The city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God gave it light and its lamp was the Lamb. One also finds wonderful passages in authors like St. Augustine in his book, The Soliloquies, where he writes, You are that light in which we must see the light. 
we must see you in yourself with the splendor of your countenance. Although it would presumably have been within God's power simply to give us grace during this life now and bestow that grace in such a way on us that it could bring us to our fulfillment without our cooperation, what we know by experience and by the church's careful reflection is that God has not chosen to operate in that way. Rather, he insists upon our cooperation. He commands us to love and to serve him in this life in order to attain the ultimate happiness of heaven, but he does leave us free to make our choices. Hence the importance of considering sanctification as well as salvation. In the notion of sanctification of the soul, what we are thinking of is a tremendous duty that all Christians have, something that we should strive for, even during this life, for greater perfection, so as to be, as Christ taught us in that passage from Matthew that I quoted, perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. On this subject, let me cite a short text, again from the Second Vatican Council, this time from Lumen Gentium. At number 40, it reads, The Lord Jesus, divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life, of which he is the author and the maker. He preached it to each and every one of his disciples without distinction. For he sent the Holy Spirit to all to move them interiorly to love God with their whole heart, with their whole soul, with their whole understanding, and with their whole strength, and to love one another as Christ loved them. It is therefore, the same text continues, quite clear that all Christians in any state or walk of life are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of love. And by this holiness, a more human manner of life is fostered also in earthly society. In order to reach this perfection, the faithful should use the strength dealt out to them by Christ's gift, so that following in his footsteps and conformed to his image, doing the will of God in everything, they may wholeheartedly devote themselves to the glory of God and the service of their neighbor. Now in a passage like that from Lumen Gentium, what we hear, I think, front and center is the tremendous importance of the two great commandments, and we'll have more to say on them in coming lectures. But it is a sense that these commandments are something that truly bind every Christian, and that all the rest of what the Gospels and the Scriptures tell us about the spiritual life is not just for the elect. We can't use as an excuse only the perfect only the relatively few have a call for perfection, and the rest of us may be content with a minimal observance. Rather, what that text from the Second Vatican Council is doing in reflecting upon the two great commandments, in reflecting, as it does elsewhere in that passage, about the Beatitudes that Christ teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, is that these parts of a Christian way of life, these paths toward spiritual perfection, are something that God has intended for all of us. Admittedly, the degree of perfection possible in this life differs from that possible in the life after bodily death. The measure of our perfection is measured by the degree of our participation as individuals in the very sanctity and perfection of God. Eventually, faith will yield to vision. Hope will yield to possession of eternal life, and charity will be made perfect. And that is our subject when we study the spiritual life. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. 
please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.